You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. If you guys haven't checked out the new Navigator series from Lacrosse, I strongly suggest you do that. Two really good boots within that Navigator series, the Windrose and the Atlas. If you want to find out more information about all of the boots that Lacrosse offers, visit their website, lacrossefootwear.com. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Ohio Huntsman podcast. And this was a really interesting conversation for us. So we had Nathan Stricker from the Division of Wildlife on to talk about migratory birds, but we sort of focused in on bird banding, right? So so all you waterfowl hunters out there, you are well aware of, of banded birds. We don't, we, we really haven't done a lot in the way of um, waterfowl hunting. So that, that's something we're looking at getting into, but we don't have a lot of experience with it. So this was a great opportunity for us to, to learn some things. So it was, it was interesting for us in that regard. And I think it's going to be interesting for you all as well, because we talked about some things that I don't think are, are commonly, um, common knowledge, if you will. For example, Ohio holds the record of the oldest banded Canadian goose and you'll have to listen to the episode I forget exactly how old it is but but the oldest banded Canadian goose on record is more than 30 years old so which you'll hear in the episode you get to hear my mind be blown right with with that sort of stat so really interesting conversation really interesting episode before we get into it, I want to take another minute to uh, thank Nathan for, for taking time to come on the show and talk to us. We really appreciate when those guys take time out of their schedule to, to come on and talk to us and therefore, you know, help get information out to you all. So one other thing I've been telling you guys, if you want to be on the show, if you have a question or a topic you want us to cover, we have a, a voicemail box you can call into. So call 330 330- 887-2403. Leave us a message, leave us a question, a topic you want us to cover, and then we can use that little audio clip that you leave us, leave us your name and, and your question, and we can dump that little audio clip into the episode, and it's a way for you all to be on the show if, if that's something you're interested in. So, as always, the last thing before we get into the episode, I want to talk about our sponsor, Mastin's Deer Sense. So, you know, it's end of season, end of deer season, if you will. But uh, it won't be too terribly long before we're trying to watch trail cameras for, well, one, I'm watching trail cameras for when the bucks are going to drop, drop their antlers. And then it won't be too terribly long until we're watching new antlers grow. And deer scent is a great way, you know, you can set up a mock scrape or something Scent is a great way to get deer in front of your camera to kind of keep an eye on things, keep tabs on antler growth, that sort of thing. So if that's something you want to try, check out mastinsdeersense.com or you can go to ohiohuntsman.com slash sponsors and there's a link right there to their website. And I think if, if you haven't been to their website yet, I think you'll you'll be pleasantly surprised by the prices. The prices are, are very good for for what I consider a, a premium scent product. So check them out. And now let's get into the episode with Nathan Stricker. Welcome to the Ohio Huntsman Podcast, where three brothers, Jason, Jacob, and Jeff, discuss all things hunting in Ohio. Our goal is to be your source for accurate and reliable hunting news and conservation issues in the great state of Ohio, as well as some fun and interesting conversations along the way. This is the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. Are you listening? All right. So today on the podcast, we've got Nathan Stricker from the Division of Wildlife. And this is going to be an interesting one for us. So we brought Nathan on to talk about waterfowl and and bird banding and, you know, as as our audience knows the three of us, you know, we don't do a ton or really any waterfowl hunting. So this is going to be a great 
learning opportunity for us and hopefully also for our our listeners. So so Nathan, keep that in mind when uh, if, if we ask you something that sounds uh, like a stupid question, it, it might be a stupid question because we don't know any better. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's okay. The, no question is a dumb question. It's uh, just a matter of whether or not I have an answer for you. Okay. All right. So why don't why don't you uh, take a minute here to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about what you do, and uh, then we'll get into some of this migratory bird, waterfowl, bird banding thing that we that we kind of outlined here. Sure. Well, uh, my title is Wildlife Biologist Supervisor. I'm a wildlife research biologist with the Division of Wildlife, and that basically means that I work in a section of the agency that is responsible for monitoring and doing research on wildlife populations around the state. So that includes um, both game and diversity wildlife species, the, the species that we don't hunt, uh, some of which are common, some of which might be not common, even to the point of being threatened or endangered. And uh, being a supervisor, I supervise a number of projects uh, for our agency, as well as a number of staff. Uh, so uh, my responsibilities and uh, those of the people uh, I work with uh, cover everything except for a few of the diversity species and wetlands and forest and deer. So turkey, uh, upland game, and waterfowl, uh, among other things, or a variety of the species that I have the fortune to work with. Okay. So, as I mentioned early, we're going to kind of talk about some of those migratory species, waterfowl, and and what's, what we sort of initially reached out to you about was bird banding in particular. That's, uh, that's something that... Uh, you know, we don't we don't have a ton of experience with, but we know that, you know, I guess from a from a, a lay point of view, banded birds are cool. Right. If you if you shoot one that's got a band, that's a that's cool. And uh, so we figured that would kind of be a good touching off point for our conversation today. So if you could. Eh, as sort of succinctly as you can, could you sort of provide a high level summary of migratory bird management in Ohio? Because I know there's a, with migratory birds, there's a federal component to that. It's not just, uh, it's not just um, inside the boundaries of Ohio, right? You've got to, you've got to engage and work with the federal management. So could you sort of summarize that for us who are, you know, are, are new to, uh, waterfowl and migratory management? Sure. You know, if uh, if you or your listeners are, you know, more familiar with deer, deer are a resident species. Their, you know, purview here in Ohio is with just within Ohio and with our agency uh, for the wild populations. And so uh, any of the hunters out there that, that might be familiar with how deer regulations are set might not be that familiar with some of the complexities of migratory species. So for clarification, migratory species, specifically migratory birds, they're birds that migrate. You know, they're here in Ohio during the spring and summer during the nesting season. Uh, some birds are passing through the state in the spring on their way north, uh, passing through Ohio across Lake Erie up into Canada, sometimes all the way up to Alaska, depending on the species. And then in the fall, uh, during waterfowl hunting season, they're coming back through. And it's not just limited to waterfowl, ducks and geese, but uh, you know, pretty much any bird that migrates. And so for a little over 100 years, in fact, since 1918, the United States has had a treaty with, uh, first with Canada and later with Mexico called the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And that was a treaty between or among these the three countries to say, hey, you know, migratory birds are important to us. Um, they use wintering grounds, summer gr uh, nesting grounds in these in these three different countries. And so there were some regulations that were set about 100 years ago about how those species, especially waterfowl, would be used. Uh, 
And so uh, Ohio, like any other state, when they have a waterfowl season, they have to work within what's called the regulatory framework or harvest framework that is you know, somewhat regulated by that Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Okay. So, so what that means, you know, question we often get from hunters, um, even from you know some non-hunters. You know, now we have the luxury of very abundant Canada goose populations here in Ohio. Some of them are almost residents; they're here, you know, throughout most of the year. We also have migrants that do pass through. It's a migratory species, and so the question we get sometimes is, why can't we have a year-round season on Canada geese? to reduce populations, you know, reduce numbers, especially in urban areas, you know, suburban parks, things of that, of that sort. Mm-hmm. And it's because of some of the bounds and the limits put in place by this federal legislation. We're only allowed to hunt, you know, certain migratory species uh, that are designated as game species uh, for a maximum number of days throughout the, the year. Um, so, even if it's a nuisance species, if there's a hunting season, we can't go on go beyond that 104 days that is uh, written into federal law. So that so, that 100 sorry to interrupt, but that 104 days that applies to every state, or is each state allocated a different number of days? Well, yes and no. So 104 is the maximum number of days specified by federal law, but if a species is abundant, we try to maximize that as much as possible, provide as much opportunity as we can for sportsmen to hunt, um, especially in cases like Canada geese, where we might be trying to reduce the populations in some key areas. Other species that might be declining or even fairly rare, then even though 104 days is specified by federal law, there's a process um, within Ohio and working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and other states to kind of find out, try to set what would be a more appropriate season um, for, for the availability of uh, particular species that are out there. Okay. For example, uh, canvasbacks, redheads, uh, scop, American black ducks aren't as numerous as Canada geese. And so what happens is uh, the technical staff Biologists such as myself, waterfowl biologists from other states, meet a couple times a year in what is called a flyway council meeting. So there are four flyways uh, throughout the throughout North America. We are in the Mississippi flyway, which extends from Mississippi. We're on the eastern uh, edge of it, and includes states and even some Canadian provinces uh, for birds, species, and populations that travel north and south through those areas. And so the states get together, uh, they've done research and monitoring throughout Canada and uh, for mallards and over the northern part of uh, the uh, flyway. And they talk about uh, what the status of those populations is. They come up with estimates of the population. Sometimes they can't come up with hard numbers as far as what the population estimate is. So they might use a surrogate measure uh, for mallards, it's pond counts in the uh, plain states and uh, the Great Plains of uh, the Canadian provinces. So the m- more ponds, generally, the more ducks, especially mallards. And so the bigger the population, then there's opportunity for possibly more liberal seasons. Okay. So those seasons are set. Uh, the recommendations are made by those various states in the flyway councils. Those recommendations then get passed on to the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service posts them in what's referred to as the Federal Register, and then they're open for comment nationally. And then once the comments are in, uh, if there's no big upsets as to what those uh, regulations will be for the upcoming year, then those are finalized in what's referred to as the harvest framework. So that gives individual states then the ability to have up to a certain number of days, a certain amount of harvest. <clears throat> Sometimes there's some other sideboards put in place in terms of bag limits, uh, things like that. And so then the states go through their internal process. And so we, we look at uh, the waterfowl populations as they are, what the federal harvest framework is from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service after going through this uh, Flyway Council uh, review process, uh, 
And then here in Ohio, we make recommendations to the Ohio Wildlife Council, which then uh, makes determination and votes on what the regulations will be for the uh, for the next uh, hunting season. Okay. So kind of convoluted the way I laid it out, but it, it's kind of a you know very collaborative approach. Multiple states working mm-hmm. together to try to be as responsible as we can, use the best science that we can to monitor and uh, species and provide what opportunity we can for sportsmen while at the same time trying to be responsible to the species and populations that pass through several states and several countries. Okay. So that's, uh, thank you for laying that out. Cause that I think sort of gives us a good framework to then sort of go forward in this conversation. So, um, you know, in that, we're, we're talking about management. Uh, these birds are are moving through multiple states. There's there's this federal component that you that you this federal framework that you outlined. So, I suspect one of those tools that you guys use for management of of migratory birds is banding birds, right? It is banding. Uh, it's we banding is used a couple of different ways. Um, and what we're talking about here is your listeners are waterfowl hunters. They're probably familiar with leg bands. For any of your listeners that, that aren't, basically when we're banding, we're talking about a, a numbered band that has been put on the leg of usually waterfowl, but it could be other migratory species. Um, but the bands are like giving a social security number to an individual duck or goose. Okay. So we... we have various trap layouts that we use to capture waterfowl, usually during the uh, spring and summer. Um, at that time, we identify them to species. We estimate their age, try to determine their sex if we can. And then we put a leg band on it. It's an aluminum band for the waterfowl that we band here in Ohio. Um, it'll have a number on it. It's a federal band. Um, as we... I can, and I can talk about some of the variety of bands that, that we use, but uh, they all get a, a plain aluminum federal band, has a, a nine-digit number on it, and that number is unique to that bird. So un- unless there's a mistake made, and it almost never happens, there's no other bird in the United States that will have that number. Okay. Okay. So it does a couple different things. We can use it to monitor populations. We can also use it in conjunction with some other tools uh, for research in which we might try to find out the answers to some specific questions, such as what habitats do uh, birds use, things like that. But uh, in in the context of our harvest frameworks, it's used as a monitoring tool where we're banding a certain number of ducks or geese each year. And we're interested primarily in how many of those birds survive to the next year, how many are harvested, and you know, what their longevity is in a lot of cases. So those bands, you said they're federal bands, those are provided to each of the states by, would that be U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? or? It was U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service up until the, I'm going to say, early to mid-90s. Um, some people might remember during the Clinton and Gore era, there was, a, there was an effort to rejuvenate the old USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey, and okay. in, um, in a biological survey. And so uh, what had happened at that time was they separated out some of the research um, staff from the management staff within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, tried to set them up as their own entity, and then for one reason or another, they were put into USGS. And so uh, there is a federal office called the Bird Banding Lab, and they handle the details for migratory bird banders all across the United States. So it doesn't matter if they're a state agency like us, could be a university that does research, it could be um, you know, a research station or a group of um, amateur birders not associated with a state agency or university, but might be doing their uh, own research and and monitoring. Um, They could be monitoring songbirds, could be monitoring waterfowl, doves, and so on. 
So mm-hmm. it's kind of a long history. Um, bird banding goes back hundreds of years. Uh, originally, bird bands were put on falcons by royalty to track their falcons and you know claim ownership if uh, the falcon got away from them or you know, they were in hunting competition with other royalty. So it's it's been a tool for a variety of reasons for hundreds of years and uh, as a wildlife management tool and a scientific research tool it's been used for about 125 years okay okay now i've seen in other states birds banded on the neck having like a neck band ohio only uses the leg bands well it depends so anytime you see a marker like that um, you might see it in a wading bird. You might see it in on a Canada goose or a sandhill crane. If it has that type of marker on it, it's also going to have a, a federal aluminum le- numbered leg band. Okay. So kind of the way the process is, any bird that gets marked, and I'll talk about that in a second, any bird that gets marked uh, that's a migratory bird always gets the numbered leg band. So that's the uh, the way the system works is that bird, individual bird, gets a unique number. And then we have what's re- referred to as auxiliary markers. So usually they're a type of marker that um, a little bit more apparent to the viewer. So it could be a neck collar. Now, we did a neck collar study on urban Canada geese about 20 years ago. Um, Canada geese are fairly long-lived. In fact, uh, we actually have the national record for the longest goose uh, within the banding system uh, at 33 years. So if you go, the Bird Banding Lab has uh, their own website. Uh, people can go on there and look at longevity records, uh, things like that. They can look at how many birds are banded in uh, different states of a particular species. But Ohio holds the record on their website for the longest-lived species. Average is two and a half years, but uh, we had one that lived 33 years. That is incredible. So when, when, you say, when you say we hold the record, that means Ohio banded that bird? Ohio that banded that bird in the late 60s, and it was harvested by a hunter uh, sometime in the, I want to say, late 80s, early 90s. Wow. All right. So, and where was you, that bird harvested? I don't recall right off the top of my head. It, it, it's been a while since I looked at the record. But um, you know, one of the things that, that we've done over the years, you, you mentioned the, the caller, is we had a, a, a study where we were, look, we were marking geese in urban and suburban areas. So th- again, this was about 20 years ago. And the question was, you know, are these geese available to harvest? Do they stay in these urban and suburban areas around these manicured corporate parks um, around city parks where you have mowed grass and ponds. Um, you, you can kind of imagine, you know, kind of the scenario. Sure. And the question was, do these birds move to other areas where hunters have access to them and therefore, you know, have uh, some potential to regulate those populations where we can use hunting as a, management tool to reduce Canada goose populations. And so uh, the leg bands we put on geese are some of the larger bands we we put on, but they're still only about three quarters of an inch high. And the numbers themselves are about a quarter of an inch high, maybe a little bit higher. So from a distance, unless you can grab that bird and take a close look, you're not going to be able to see that band. And so what, where these auxiliary markers come in, it could be a colored leg band on the opposite leg. It could be a, ne- uh, a neck collar like we used on geese. We also had them on some uh, trumpeter swans around the state. Um, but it's a big, bright colored plastic uh, necklace, basically, if it's loosely around the neck. And the ones we used were white with black, large black letters. They're about two and a half inches high. And so with a spotting scope or binoculars, uh, a bird watcher or any of our staff can view that bird without approaching it, without disturbing its behavior, and you know, identify that bird uh, because it will have a unique number on that neck collar. And so by doing this study, we were able to observe some of these urban and suburban geese 
um, around the Dayton area, Akron area, and so on, as they were flying out and landing in farm fields uh, away from these uh, urban centers. And so we concluded that, yes, they are available to hunters. And, and so hunting is uh, one of the means that we use to reduce those Canada goose populations in some of those urban centers. Okay, I want to pause here briefly and talk about our other sponsor, Monster Whitetail Grub. So Monster Whitetail Grub is sort of your go-to shop for deer feed. So if you're looking for deer feed, they've certainly got that covered in their in their sort of signature product, their Monster Whitetail Grub feed. They also have flavored corn. And the other thing, you know, as, as we start getting into fawn development and antler growth in the springtime here, mineral is, you know, a lot of guys like to run mineral. They've got mineral. So the other nice thing that I didn't mention is their, their signature feed actually has mineral mixed in. So it's a feed and mineral product. So they've got basically what you need when it comes to feeding deer, supplementing deer, or just getting deer in front of your trail, in front of your trail cameras. So check them out. Go to ohiohuntsman.com slash sponsors, and you can find a link to their, to how to get in touch with them and try some of their stuff. And with that, let's get back to the conversation with Nathan. That's, uh, it's, you know, it's just amazing some of the things that you can learn from this, right? Because, you know, a lot of these, you know, within the species, a can, you know, one Canada goose generally looks like another one, whereas, you know, deer, some, especially bucks, right? They sometimes have some unique characteristics that you can identify a particular deer if they've got their antlers, you know, and, and sometimes even from year to year. And so it's, it's just fascinating to me to, to, you know, the, the, 30 plus year old goose, right? I, I would have never, never would have imagined that a, a Canada goose would have lived that long. So now, you know, even smaller species, morning doves, um, you typically think of a small bird that doesn't live that long, you know, on average, they live for about a year and a half. Um, our maximum, uh, longevity on abandoned morning dove is 12 years. Wow. And, you know, so it, it, again, it's a bird that was banded as a fledgling, um, you know, full size, hadn't, you know, uh, grown in its, its full adult feathers at that point. But 12 years later, it was harvested by a hunter at, during one of our hunting seasons. So, wow. you know, birds live a lot longer than we think. I mean, some of them are outliers. Some of them are kind of the rarities uh, for the species. But, yeah, to... And when you think about it, especially with Canada geese, when you think about the fact that in the 1950s, we were repopulated, we were bringing in Canada geese into uh, four or five of our wildlife areas here in Ohio, trying to reestablish a goose population. And here we are almost 75 years later. And, you know, they do have the long longevity. They, you know, are very, they're they have very good reproduction. And so we have the populations we have now because of some of that. Yeah, that's, but, uh, that's incredible. So you, you talk about age, um, you know, that dove, you know, it, it, it was a fledgling. So you had a pretty good idea of age, but how, if, if it's not obvious that it's, you know, this year's goose duck dove, what, you know, how are you guys estimating age when you're, when you're banding a bird? So each species has its own pattern of feathers and, you know, feathers wear over time, you know, for mammals like us, you know, hair falls out, hair grows back in. It grows to the point where we need a haircut, but beyond that, we don't really notice replacement um, with the birds, especially waterfowl. It's a little bit different story in that, you know, over a short time span, they go through a molt. And in the case of doves, you have birds that, as they're maturing and becoming full size, they eventually get to the point where they need to molt. And they're replacing feathers that, in the case of young, they're too small for their large body size. Or in the case of an adult, they're replacing feathers that are worn. And so sometimes we see uh, this molt, this feather replacement, um, either right before 
reproduction and spring migration or sometimes before fall migration. And so what we do is we, in case of doves, we look at um, the feathers as they're being replaced on the wing. We can tell which ones are worn, which ones are not. And there's a subtle difference in the coloration of the feathers between the juveniles that have, uh, that have not reached maturity yet. And so uh, there's a narrow time span that through July and August where we catch the uh, doves, we take a look at their wing, uh, we look at where the feather replacement stage is on that wing, and um, if they have that little color marker on the on the tips of the wings, the uh, tips of the feathers of on the wing, then we can tell it's a juvenile. Uh, if it doesn't have it, we can look at some of the other coloration on the adults, and on the adults we can actually tell by coloration on the breast and on the head, uh, difference between males and females. Okay. So we talked a little, you know, you, you told us that it's a unique number, that it's the only bird in, in the country that will have that number. It's like a social security number. What other, I mean, obviously, if you, you've got information on age then when, when you collect that, sample or you catch that bird again and you uh, plug that number into the database, right? You can get some age demographics, uh, location, where you're finding these birds. What other kind of information or, or what other things can you glean from banded birds? It, it really, almost the sky is the limit. It's been really exciting the last 20 years with a lot of the technological advancements that have been made. I mentioned the, the auxiliary markers such as the leg bands or colored leg bands. Um, you know, for about 40 some years, we've been able to put radio transmitters on some of the larger birds, geese and, and ducks in particular. And so VHF frequency, you have to follow them around with the transmitter or receiver, but you can pick up a, a signal that's broadcast from these transmitters and, you know, track where they go. And the last 20 years, we've seen all sorts of great technology come on board. We have satellite transmitters now that we can put on, on ducks and geese. And you put it on at the same time you put on the numbered leg band, release them, and a satellite will track their movement. And so we actually did that uh, with a pair of osprey that were hacked here in Ohio about 15 years ago. And we were able to track those osprey as they moved during migration. In fact, uh, we had it up on our, on our website for a while. Um, but we were able to watch these osprey as they moved southward during fall migration down to the Gulf states. They hung around uh, Florida for a bit, crossed the Caribbean into the Bahamas and hung out in the Bahamas for the winter and then came back the following spring. So... Yeah, technology like that enables us to fine-tune where we can observe birds going. We don't have to follow them around. We don't have to go out and look for them. But we can get locations from them on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, sometimes multiple times a day, depending on what a research question is, and get information about where they go, what habitats they're using, and so on. So, for example, you know, there was a study of, uh, of uh, duck use of marshes up on Lake Erie here within the last couple of years. And they were looking at feeding behavior during the fall, during the migration. You know, one of the questions was, you know, what can you know, different hunters do to get birds to come in closer to the blinds? Some areas were, were promoting flooded corn, as an example, rather than managed uh, wetland habitat. Um, habitat that we try to manage to be as good of quality as possible. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to look at uh, movements between the daytime and the nighttime and show, yeah, birds were using you know, some of the flooded corn. They were using some of the natural wetland as was managed up along the Lake Erie shoreline. But they tend to use it more during the odd hours when hunting was not available. During the daytime, they would actually move out into uh, some open water away from those marsh areas. And we, they, they think that was partially due to some of the hunting pressure uh, that they had up, up on the lake. Um, 
in general, uh, most of the birds don't receive these transmitters. They're, they're very expensive for one thing. And for the bulk of the information that we're trying to get, we're primarily interested in where those birds go and where they are harvested at. So we're looking at survival and harvest rate, basically. So in the spring, we do population surveys. We're trying to estimate whether you know, nesting populations of waterfowl are higher or lower uh, compared to previous years. That helps us make decisions about what type of harvest framework we might recommend for the following year. But we also want to keep tabs on harvest, how many of the population are killed on an annual basis. So even if a population is relatively stable, we don't want our harvest to be so high that it starts to depress these populations and you know, get them down to you know, levels that might not be sustainable anymore. And so typical bird, um, Canada goose, for instance, we banned uh, when we trap them. There's about a two to three week period in June here in Ohio, where Canada geese are flightless. They're going through their molt, um, so they can't fly away from us. You know, we round them up into big corral traps, and one by one, we take a hold of them. We examine them for uh, to assess their age and their sex. We put a numbered leg band on them, and off they go. We release them. They complete their molt, and by July, they're up flying again. So by the time August, September rolls around, first of the hunting season comes in, then those birds can either migrate south and live their lives, come back the following spring, or they may be harvested by a hunter. So if they're harvested, what we hope is that the hunter will recognize that the bird is banded and then actually take the time to report that band to the National Banding Office, the Bird Banding Lab in uh, Maryland. And so uh, there's a website that they can go to called reportband.gov. So anytime a hunter has a duck or goose, they see it has a band on it, then they can go to that website and then report that band. So eventually we get uh, a summary uh, of all the bands that have been reported by hunters, either here in Ohio or elsewhere. Um, and then using that information and in conjunction with similar information among other states, we can estimate the harvest rate and the degree of survivorship in the various populations. Okay. So that report, is it a, is it specific to birds that were banded in Ohio or is it one, one report that everybody gets that you can then filter by like filter down to the birds that, that you're interested in? There's different reports that uh, are made available. So once a year, uh, the bird banding lab uh, publishes kind of the full data set of bird bands that have been reported uh, going back to the beginning, basically. Here in Ohio, we've been banding waterfowl since about 1946. So we've, we've banded probably about 600,000 to about 700,000 uh, waterfowl and other migratory species here in the state. So what I have available to me as a biologist is I got to report every two weeks of birds that have been reported that our agency banded. Um, every couple months, I'll get a quarterly report that lists reports of any band uh, reported by that was put on by any bander here in Ohio. Okay. So different reports that kind of different levels of detail, some more specific to individual bander, some a little bit more general. Okay. So given some of this new technology that you, that you mentioned, has there been anything surprising come out of that either, you know, whether it was something that was done here in Ohio or in other States where, you know, where you guys thought that, this particular species was doing one thing and then you, you found out it was doing something completely different? Well, it, it, a good example is, is the habitat study that was just done on Lake Erie. You know, things like that, studies like that have been done, you know, for decades. A lot of it, uh, it's not necessarily surprising, um, but, you know, they're used to 
in the context of research in which we have a question based on some observations and we're trying to, to formally test, you know, are those observations, what we, is what we think happening really what's happening? And so you, usually they're centered around um, habitat availability is um, a certain amount of habitat better or worse for promoting uh, uh, certain species. Uh, we've had some uh, studies looking at migration and patterns of migration. Uh, for example, um, a webless marsh bird, um, the Virginia rail, Sora rail, and there's uh, some other species. They're a group of species that use wetlands like waterfowl, but they're fairly secretive. Uh, they're much smaller species. They tend to stay close to uh, very dense vegetation. And so even though they're a hunted species, we believe they're fairly numerous, but we really didn't have a good idea about um, how they use the marshes along Lake Erie and what some of their migration patterns were. And so, you know, traditionally you think of kind of a migration period in the spring where birds come through, they use habitat here in Ohio, and then they move on up to Michigan and up into Canada. Um, some birds go straight across Lake Erie some will actually follow the coastline around up through Michigan and on northward that way. And then following that spring migration, you think of kind of a nesting period. Birds that uh, come into Ohio, they use the habitat for migration. They stay and settle in that habitat and have their nest there. And one of the surprising things was that for this group of species, for these rails, there was a lot of overlap in when birds were migrating and nesting. And so there wasn't kind of a more, more or less discrete period where you can say, yes, migration has stopped and nesting has begun. So what was happening is that we use a, a, an audio survey where we send staff out to various wetlands along Lake, Lake Erie and elsewhere uh, farther inland in the state. And we listen for the bird calls for this group of, of marsh birds, these rails and a few other species. And so we would use these spring counts with, during what we thought was you know, just a nesting period. We would hear a certain number of them and make estimates as to the abundance or the relative abundance of these species. And so what we found out in these uh, recent banding studies and studies with these transmitters where we can follow movements of these birds is that some of the birds we were counting during the nesting season actually didn't stay to nest. They were actually moving through the area and heading farther north. And so, you know, researchers uh, at OSU are still trying to make sense of it in terms of what does that mean for our, our counts? Um, but, you know, that's probably one of the surprising things in terms of the biology of this group of species Sure. And understanding, you know, how they're using and when they're using particular habitats here in Ohio. Okay. <clears throat> so it sounds like you guys are banding some number of birds every year. Is that correct? We do as a state agency. Um, you can also have banders here in Ohio associated with the universities that might be doing some bird research on migratory species. Um, like I said, you also have some other you know, more amateur um, bird banders, they're doing research or contributing to a larger research body, but they may not be associated with the agency or with the university. And so, you know, as an agency, um, we ban for two purposes. We ban for long-term monitoring of populations and monitoring of harvest with our game species. And then we periodically might have a special uh, banding study where we might be trying to answer you know, a particular question. Uh, for example, several years ago, um, questions started coming up about sandhill cranes. Sandhill crane populations here in the Midwest have been growing. Um, here in Ohio, sandhill cranes are an endangered species. But what's happened regionally is that the population has grown to the point where Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama have proposed and, and now have hunting seasons uh, for sandhill cranes. And so there was some concern about whether or not Ohio's 
nesting sandhill cranes might be exposed to some of that hunting pressure once they migrated south to other states. And so we were able to do a special research study where we capture sandhills, we put leg bands on them with that unique number, put uh, the satellite transmitters on them where we can follow their movement and then watch their timing of migration uh, in relation to timing of the proposed hunting season in those southern states to see whether or not you know, some of the birds that nest here in Ohio might have been exposed to that hunting pressure farther south. Okay. So th that's a research project. Most of the banding that we do year on a year-to-year basis is more for that long-term monitoring of the population size and the harvest, trying to put birds, uh, trying to uh, put bands out there in the Ohio's population of mallards, wood ducks, Canada geese, and morning doves, and then looking at, once they've been harvested, looking at where they've been harvested at, whether it's here in Ohio or other states uh, throughout the flyway, and then trying to make sense of, you know, how does that harvest impact or not have an impact on the overall population? Okay. So do you have yeah. a... So do ahead, you have yeah. a, like a, do you have a general like quota each year of birds that you want to band or do you just go out like on banding days and however many you get, you get, or how does that work? Well, we, we spread the wealth around. Um, Ohio being part of the Mississippi flyway, a lot of our the banding that we do is in conjunction with the overall regional or flyway effort. So uh, a lot of times we're not calculating a harvest rate just for Ohio or uh, trying to estimate a population size just for Ohio. So usually that's wrapped up into more of that regional or that flyway estimate. And then that information is used in that discussion annually about harvest regulations. And so we kind of have a quota. Uh, we have a certain number that we try to band of various species each year. For mallards, we've been trying to get around 1,500 to 2,000 birds banded around the state. Wood ducks, um, somewhere around 12 to 1,300. We band about 1,300 morning doves annually and about 1,000 to 1,200 Canada geese annually. All right. So I think you've covered... It sounds like, unless unless you've got more species, but it sounds like you've touched a little bit on the main species you guys are, are typically banding, uh, you know, year in and year out. Is there anything the, else that the, you haven't the, covered? The, the bulk of our species are, are those four. Um, so of uh, the waterfowl that's harvested in Ohio, the ones that are most harvested are Canada geese, wood ducks, mallards, green-winged okay. teal, but... You know, most of the teal harvested in the state are, are coming from outside of Ohio. So in terms of populations that we could have, you know, some impact on and for which we want to monitor the population and monitor harvest levels, then, you know, those are the species that we're banding. Like I said, we do band other things. Uh, we've banded uh, for research purposes uh, birds as small as hummingbirds. Uh, we had some staff here in our agency that were banding hummingbirds for a research project uh, back in the early to mid-1990s. Um, last few years, like I said, we've banded sandhill cranes. We used to ban bald eagles, ospreys, peregrine falcons. So, you know, we have banded a wide variety of species over the years, but year to year, mallards, wood ducks, Canada geese, and morning doves are what we ban the most of. A hummingbird band has to be tiny. Has to be tiny. So, you know, we talk about this uh, bird banding lab and this federal coordination. So anybody that bands, you, you can't just, you know, ask for bands and, and go out and start catching birds and and putting bands on birds, uh, at least not anymore. A hundred years ago, you, you could have. Um, but, you know, anybody that's banding is operating under a permit from the bird banding lab. And so they have to demonstrate that they have a certain level of expertise in being able to capture the bird in a humane manner. You don't want to capture it in such a way that it could cause some injury or even death. Um, you want to handle the bird safely to be able to put the band on. And so when you have something as small and as delicate as a hummingbird, it actually takes you know extra training 
to be able to handle a bird that small safely and put the band on without injuring its leg. Okay. One thing that I I keep saying when we do these episodes with, with you guys is like, I always come away fascinated with, you know, just the, the amount of, um, science and, and, and data that, that, uh, you guys are collecting and using to make, using to learn about the species, you know, what's, what these species need, what's important to them, what impacts their, their populations and using to make decisions for hunting regulations and things. It's, you know, in the, in the social media world, you know, you can kind of sometimes get the sense that people think, you know, you guys are just pulling this stuff out of thin air and, and there's no, there's nothing to back it up. And, and, there very much is. And so it, it's always fascinating to, to hear and, and learn about this stuff from you guys. We do our best. Uh, we try to use the best science that we can to make decisions, not just for uh, the sake of, you know, waterfowl and migratory bird species and the populations here in Ohio, but, you know, also for the sportsmen. Um, among waterfowl hunters, probably one of the more contentious topics uh that comes up every few years is the zones. We have discrete waterfowl zones in the northern part of the state and the southern part of the state. And just because different parts of the state have freeze up at different times of the fall. And you really can't predict when it's going to turn cold. Um, so on average, I can tell you, yeah, usually by December, it's, you know, you have ice over in uh, some of the wetlands up in the northern part of the state, and you're going to have less waterfowl up there. Sure. Um, and wetlands are going to be more open in the, the southern part of the state. And so, you know, we can't look into a crystal ball and say, yes, this year, you know, the season should open, you know, on this date. But you know, we do the best we can. And interestingly, one of the uh, fascinating things about, um, about waterfowl seasons and what we can offer in terms of zones for our, our sportsmen, we've been able to get from some of these banding studies. So, for example, uh, each year we ban, like I said, 12 or 1300 wood ducks around the state, some up along Lake Erie, some at uh, different wetlands uh, farther south uh, throughout Ohio. And as hunters harvest these birds, they see the band, they report it, we get those reports back. And over multiple years, we can look at the timing, not just relative to when the zones are open, but we can look at the timing during those uh, different waterfowl periods as to when birds are being harvested. And this starts to give us a picture of what the migration pattern is each fall uh, for wood ducks as they're moving through the state. So once we start looking at 20 or 30 years worth of harvest data, we can say, okay, yeah, birds are are being harvested here in Ohio in mid to late October. And then we can start seeing that harvest pattern start moving southward the later you get into October and early November. And so by Thanksgiving, most of the birds being harvested and reported across the country are coming from Kentucky and Tennessee. They're not coming from Ohio. So it tells us, you know, by, you know, late October, early November, not just you know, this is when the season is, but you know, birds are moving through Ohio. That's when the best chances are for birds to be harvested by our sportsmen. And you know, if you have a hunter that says, "Hey, season was open too early, you should extend it," well, our, our data shows that usually by Thanksgiving and into December, those birds have already moved out of the state. And so, you know, extending that season. Um, based on the perception that it was warmer longer usually doesn't hold up because we have pretty good evidence that birds have already moved on and we see them being harvested in Kentucky, Tennessee, and then the Gulf States uh, by uh, mid-December. Okay. So is there a particular state where most of the birds that are banded in Ohio are harvested or is it, or do they just kind of string out as they, as they migrate South? It really varies. They tend to fan out. Um, morning doves being an exception, we last estimate uh, for state, we haven't estimated the state populations in a while, but 
figure three to four million morning doves here in Ohio uh, that are resident birds. So we're banning birds. Uh, we're banning morning doves in August and July. So we're banning birds that nested here that were hatched here. Ninety-five percent of those birds that we banned are harvested here in Ohio. So most of the harvest takes place the first week of the season. So I don't know if you guys are dove hunters. Uh, dove season opens September 1st. Most hunters pursue doves during the hunting season uh, that first week in September. And so that's where most of our harvest takes place. Most of the birds harvested are, are harvested here in the Buckeye State. There are a few that uh, get harvested down in the southern states, especially along the Gulf Coast. When you start looking at Canada geese, it's all over. A lot of them here in Ohio, especially with our uh, September season. But uh, once you look at, you know, birds overall, Canada geese uh, really disperse in kind of a starburst pattern. A lot of them moving south, but we have birds that will move west and they'll get harvested out in Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota. We have some that actually move northward uh, early in the season before their fall, full fall migration. They might be harvested up in Ontario. In Michigan oh, wow. or upstate New York, yeah, it, it's really surprising to uh, to see how far um, birds will go. Mallards and wood ducks—it's uh, more of a fan pattern. So they're or they originate here in Ohio, and then uh, you can see that they're moving out. Some move more to Mississippi and Louisiana. Some move more toward Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, and uh, you'll see some scattered sightings throughout. Uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, and the northern parts of Georgia and Alabama, then you'll see big concentrations of harvest locations down along the Gulf Coast where they, they settle for the winter. Okay. So we are, you mentioned uh, morning doves. We, we are newly minted uh, morning dove hunters. We did our first uh, dove hunt this, this fall and had a blast. And, and Excellent. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely be doing that again uh, this coming fall so that was a good time you know surprisingly there's only about 10 or 12,000 hunters in the state that hunt morning doves it's you know and it's one of our if not the most abundant game species here in ohio yeah. so it it's it's the bluegill fishing of the hunting world <laughs> i like that analogy i like that so Jeff, any other questions for Nathan before we let him go? Uh, maybe just one more. Uh, this just popped up in my head. So the majority of the bands that Ohio hunters are harvesting the birds, are those are the majority of those birds banded in Ohio, or are those coming from a different state? For morning doves, they're definitely you know from here in Ohio. Canada geese, the majority are from here in Ohio. You see, you know, larger proportions of out-of-state birds uh, with wood ducks and mallards, especially mallards later in the season, um, as you know, migration is, has has moved on and it's progressed some later into the fall. Um, but overall, the majority of birds that we see reported are from Ohio. So, okay. just give you an example. Um, on average, about 15 to 25% of our mallards that we banned get reported in harvest. 10 to 15% of wood ducks uh, that we banned get reported as harvest. So yeah, there's a good number of uh, birds out there being harvested uh, that were banded here in Ohio, mm -hmm. and they're, they're being harvested here. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, this, you know, like I've said, this is... I love having these kinds of conversations and this has been another, another eye-opening, fascinating conversation. Uh, hopefully we can do more of these with you in the future. I think this is, you know, this one sort of laid some groundwork for us and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of other things we could talk about and, and, you know, we could talk your ear off all night, but <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate your time. We don't want to hold you any longer than, uh, than we already have. So thank well, you for thank taking time. Go I ahead. want to thank you guys too for the opportunity to uh, talk, and uh, I'm I'm glad you found uh, the waterfowl and the banding world interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So, yeah. thank you, and uh, we'll have to do this again. Definitely. 
Okay, so that's going to do it for this week's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that that conversation. Like I said at the beginning, I know we did. Learned a lot. And the other thing I'll say is stay tuned for next week. Next week we've got another guy from the Division of Wildlife coming on to talk about the small game changes. So we, we, we did an episode about the, the small game changes with just Jacob, Jeff, and I. This one is going to be, we're, you know, we're going to try and get some of the questions that you all have asked us about, you know, the proposed changes. We're going to try and get those questions answered. So make sure to tune in next week and listen to that. And then the, the last thing I want to ask you, because we haven't really asked for this in a while, is if you're if you're new to the, the podcast, if you're new to the show, or if you haven't left a review yet, please go and leave a review. So leave a review on iTunes. We can see in the analytics that most of you listen through you know with it with a iphone so leave a review in your apple podcast app or if you're an android user like me leave a review or you know favorite our show on whatever whatever app you're using that would really really help us reach more people and help the show grow so if you could leave us a five-star review we would really really appreciate it and We will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Mm